The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Qualcomm is trying to use its bid for rival chipmaker NXP as a takeover shield, and Credit Suisse transparency in Asia may give it an edge over peers. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Seva. Global chipmakers are spoiling for a fight. The latest twist in the ring involves Qualcomm which raised its offer by 16% for rival NXP semiconductors to $44 billion. The trouble is, Qualcomm is a target, too. Here to discuss this semiconductor soap opera is Breaking Views U.S. editor John Foley. John, welcome back to the program. Hi, John. Hey. So um, there's a lot to talk about here because there are a ton of moving pieces because this is what's interesting about this is it's a huge M&A saga battle Somebody wants somebody else. Pile up fight. Pile up nobody. Pillow fight. (laughs) It's hostile. So stand back for a second. Just briefly describe to our listeners who these companies are. So Qualcomm and Broadcom, here's the thing about these companies. These are not companies that you're going to like see on the shelves of Walmart. These are not companies that consumers interact with, but they are huge because both of them make chips, particularly wireless chips that go in above all the iPhone. Right. So most people do, in some ways, interact with them. You, you in your pockets now, you have probably a Broadcom and a Qualcomm chip. And they're also huge. And just in financial terms, these companies are both over, well over $100 billion each. Um, so the one thing to know about this deal is that it's just big and these companies have products everywhere. The other thing is that it's, it's really hostile. Like We talk about hostile bids and we like covering hostile bids because hostility is always kind of fun, right? Um, but this is like really hostile. A hostile bid is really just any, any M&A situation where the target didn't ask to be approached. But in this situation, the bidder, Broadcom, which is run by this guy called Hock Tan, is being so aggressive. It's come in with this uh, offer which Qualcomm initially rejected. Um, it then came back and said, right, we're gonna, if you reject this offer, we're going to actually try and put new directors on your board, kick out your current board of directors, replace them with ones who are kind of friendly to us, and then get you back to the negotiating table. And they've now done this extra aggressive thing just, just today, in fact, which is to actually cut the price they're offering because Qualcomm is trying to kind of throw sand in the wheels by doing its own side deal. Okay, so let's talk about Qualcomm for a second here and what they're doing with NXP. This has kind of been on the table for them for a while. Is that correct? So Qualcomm is, yeah. So Qualcomm, it, for well over a year now, has been trying to buy another chip maker. So and this is prior to the Broadcom. Exactly. So, okay. like, so now we introduce a third chip maker, NXP. Qualcomm wants to buy NXP. It thinks okay. it's a good deal. It thinks there's lots of growth, which Qualcomm doesn't really have much of on its own. Now, the problem with this NXP deal, which is, you know, recently just been raised to about $44 billion, is that it hasn't yet been approved by regulators because, you know, chips is a consolidated industry um, in Europe, in the US, in China. All the regulators want to have a look at these deals before they approve them. And China still has not said that Qualcomm can buy NXP. So your backdrop here is like over a year of just waiting for China to And And why deal. in China just, again, why would they care? Is it because these chips show up in Chinese cell phones? They show up everywhere. They, and that's why they have some sort of deal. Absolutely. Them. The other thing to know about China, though, the reason China cares, and this is relevant because China will also have a chance to care about Broadcom and Qualcomm. Right. It, it, it's not. They, Broadcom just moved 
moved to the US? It's, what, explain yeah, that. Well, Broadcom is also, by the way, re-domiciling in America to kind of it. wrap itself in the flag. Okay. I mean, that probably will make American regulators feel a bit better about it. So China gets a say, and China, China likes people to know. I mean, this is my view rather than a fact, but China likes people to know that it kind of holds the whip hand because this is a growing superpower with a fairly new antitrust regime. And, and obviously, it's a huge market. that Everyone wants to, wants to be able to sell their products in China. China gets to decide. So NXP rolling through this kind of slow antitrust process. And in the meantime, Broadcom's come along and said, listen, we want to buy Qualcomm. Um, you know, we'll tolerate this NXP deal, tolerate it. We don't love it, but we'll tolerate it. Right. And, and here's a specific point that we have to make here is that they will tolerate it at the original price at Qualcomm, uh, 14% less than they had when they put on the table. And then they go off and they raise the bid. And it's kind of, to me, seems like a big middle finger to Broadcom. Exactly. So like, so th- this this is where this whole deal, you know, these two big chip makers, one wants to merge the other, it just becomes so complicated and, and as I said, really hostile. So because Qualcomm has now raised its offer for NXP, because it really wants to get shareholders at NXP to be like, okay, fine, we'll do this deal, even though we don't know if the Chinese regulator will approve it. Broadcom has come back and said, well, we, we, like, we didn't mind that deal at the price you're offering, but now you've raised your price for NXP, we're going to cut our price for Qualcomm, which they've now done by a total of about $4 billion dollars which is like super aggressive. It's really, it's cheeky. Mm-hmm. I love it because it's cheeky and aggressive and, <laughs> and it's a bit of a slap in the face for Qualcomm. And it's kind of saying, listen, we desperately want to buy you and we are going to, you know, they're saying they think they've got a really good case. Shareholders are going to back And do down. they? I mean, do, do, well, do, what, what's your read? Like, So I think Broadcom really wants this and, it, and, it, and putting, trying to put directors on the board is a very aggressive move. But already two, um, two of what, what they call proxy advisors, so these companies that kind of like weigh up what shareholders should do, are basically saying that Qualcomm's shareholders should actually give Broadcom's directors a try. So when they get a chance to vote for their directors, they maybe should bring some Broadcom directors, Broadcom nominees rather, on the board to like bring a fresh approach. So that's like a sign that, you know, at least the proxy agencies, probably a lot of investors would quite like to see these companies at least have a proper conversation and see what they can okay. put together. So why doesn't Qualcomm want to be bought by Broadcom? This is a really good question. I mean, like, there are, there are good reasons and bad reasons to not want to be bought by another company. The good reason is that you just think the price is too low. Um, and, but, which just got lower. And it just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the low price yeah. just got lower. Yeah. Now, if you look at where Qualcomm shares are actually trading, they're about $63 at the moment. Broadcom was previously offering until it just cut the price. It was offering like $82. So it's, it's a little bit difficult for Qualcomm to say credibly that this price is too low, they could maybe try and get it up a bit, you know, get it a bit high, but it's not too low. Um, so um, that's one. Another bad reason to say that a price is too low is when managers just don't want to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Qualcomm has got a pretty good management team. They're fairly well respected. The board has some really good people on it. It's got it's a very sort of financially focused board, lots of people who did deals. Which for would make you companies. think that they would like be at the table. You would think yeah. so. Yeah. You, the one one slight red flag is that the CEO of Qualcomm, a guy called Steve Mollenkopf, and the chairman, Paul Jacobs, they've both been there for a really long time. Now, the chairman is particularly important there because the chairman obviously runs the board. But the chairman's been at Qualcomm since like, since he was out of college, basically. He's been there since 1990. And sometimes that can make people a little bit more sentimental, a little bit less happy to see the company that they've nurtured for 30 years um, sold to another. So that's the thing to be aware of, just to keep an eye out for. But really, the best thing for all sides is if this is all just negotiating tactics. And in the end, they come to the table and they actually hammer something out, which is credible and works for everyone. All right. Well, let's hope there's more fighting before that happens. 
And they so will it's much more exciting. Oh, by the way, also, the other thing is that even if they do agree a deal, then all the regulators have yeah. to come in and say what there's they think China. will happen. Yeah. There's China. But yeah. there's also Europe, right, which just fined Qualcomm like nearly a billion euros for being a bit dodgy in the way it treated its supplies. There's also the US. So actually, despite all of the things I just said, our base case is that even if this deal did get agreed, the regulators probably wouldn't let it through. So you're going to be writing about it a long time. Oh, forever. Okay. All right. We'll just call you the chips columnist now. (laughs) Okay. All right, John, thank you so much. Thanks, John. Now we're going to hand it off to our colleagues in Asia. Hello, everyone. I'm Katrina Hamlin, production editor at Reuters Breaking News in Hong Kong. And I'm joined here by Quinton Webb, who's our financial editor. Welcome, Quinton. Hi, Katrina. Uh, You've been taking a look at Credit Suisse in Asia. What's interesting about them in this region? That's right. Well, um, Credit Suisse is unusual in that for an investment bank, it discloses quite a lot of detailed information about what it's doing in Asia. Now, several other banks don't really reveal quite as much because uh, a couple of reasons, really. Um, Traditionally, Asia has not been that material to the overall operations of the banks. And also because it's a kind of growth region, people have not been prioritizing profitability. So actually, there's probably not that great a story to tell. That's not to say that there aren't other banks, some of the universal banks, for example, like HSBC and Citigroup are both very big in Asia, and they disclose quite a lot of detailed information. Um, But compared to, you know, a a US bank like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, uh, Credit Suisse is very forthcoming about how it's doing here. And why would Credit Suisse bother doing this? Right. Well, so um, since Chief Executive Tijan Tiam took over in 2015, one of the things he's wanted to do is to make sure that people think about Credit Suisse in Asia as what he calls the trusted entrepreneur's bank. Now, the reason for doing that is that in Asia, um, the business of managing personal fortunes and doing corporate banking, so advising on things like share sales or mergers and acquisitions is much more intertwined than it would be elsewhere. And that's because a lot of the rich people in this region are, if you think about it, either slightly older tycoons, uh, maybe in countries like Hong Kong or Indonesia, or they're a new generation of tech tycoons, founders whose startups are now worth billions of dollars. So if you can kind of integrate together the business of managing someone's money and helping them uh, deal with their kind of corporate questions too, you can, in theory, do a much better job. And so that's what TM is trying to do. He's trying to call attention to this um, opportunity that Credit Suisse has in the region. It's by no means the only bank that sees this opportunity. UBS and others are doing something very similar. Um, But uh, by reporting what they do in Asia separately, they are sort of sending a signal to the market that this matters and this is a key part of their future. And what do the results show? Well, to be honest, it's a mixed bag, actually. So in Asia, they have these two divisions, one which uh, groups together traditional investment banking and wealth management, and another division which is a markets business. So that's the sort of sales and trading business which handles fixed income currencies and commodities as well as equities. Um, And the wealth management business is going gangbusters. So, you know, assets under management there are very roughly $200 billion now, Um, They grew very fast last year. Um, The investment banking bit is doing pretty well too. Uh, They're particularly strong in equities where they were on several of the big tech IPOs in Asia last year. So Zhong An, the um, online insurer, 
or China Literature, the Tencent spin-off, are two of the deals they were on. However, the markets business, like many markets businesses across Wall Street, is struggling. And so that means overall, um, the, the business is, is not doing super well. It made a sort of middling return on regulatory capital of 15%, which is um, sort of in the middle of the different Credit Suisse business units. A return on regulatory capital is a rather funny measure, which Credit Suisse has tried to popularize. Um, but it's a way of sort of thinking about what amount of profits you make versus the amounts of capital that regulators require you to hold. And um, what are the drawbacks to this approach? Well, I guess there are a couple of drawbacks. One is that um, it, it's not all about increased transparency. There is also a case to be made that in some cases it kind of obscures the picture a bit too. So if you put um, investment banking together with wealth management, as they do in a business called Wealth Management and Connected, which is a very clunky name, um, then it becomes slightly harder, not impossible, but slightly harder to divine what each of those two separate businesses is doing. And meanwhile, if you have a separate Asia markets business, which sits alone from the markets businesses in the rest of the world, um, at the moment, that has the effect of flattering the other markets businesses. If you added the Asia business back, I reckon you'd probably boost the sort of capital that they're using by about 20%, and it would probably take 4% or so off their pre-tax income. So effectively, that standalone markets business is helping the other markets businesses look better. There's a second thing to say, which is a different kind of drawback, which is just that, you know, Asia is full of emerging markets and those throw up particular risks. Uh, so a couple of years ago, JP Morgan was fined more than $260 million by US regulators for um, hiring well-connected people in China. This is a sort of um, a princeling probe, they people were calling it. So, you know, effectively... U.S. regulators saw that as a form of bribing. They were hiring the relatives of powerful people in order to secure business. Um, and since then, there have been various media reports and or official admissions that various other banks are in the frame that they're being investigated. And um, we learned during the course of Credit Suisse's annual results that they too, now for the first time, have officially confirmed that they're being probed by U.S. regulators for hiring practices in Asia. So has this paid off for Tian? Has the overall strategy of shining a spotlight on Asia paid off? Um, I think not yet is probably the fairest way of putting it. So, you know, if you look at how Credit Suisse trades in the stock market, the shares are probably worth about 12 times forward earnings the last time I looked, which is very slightly above where UBS, their nemesis trades. But it's, you know a good distance below HSBC, which is a big universal bank, which talks a lot about how it is making a pivot to Asia. So it's probably hard to argue, I think, at 12 times earnings that you're getting a lot of Asian growth premium in your stock. That's not to say it couldn't grow into such a premium in the future, but I don't see much evidence of it in their current stock price. Well, thank you very much, Quinton. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my guests, including John Foley, Katrina Hamlin, and Quentin Webb. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.